Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. A king, a cope, and a faith under siege. Intrigued? Today's episode covers all of this and more. Our guest, Dr. Jan Grapius, the curator of collections at Stonyhurst College in the UK, the oldest surviving Jesuit school in the world, is our guide through a riveting history that traces the rise and fall of the Catholic Church in England through the lens of a single piece of art, a cope commissioned by Henry VII. Copes are common liturgical vestments, but this one, one of the most expensive items commissioned by a king, was meant to unite the power of church and state to strengthen a dubious claim to the throne. But ultimately, it became a symbol of Catholic resistance and was smuggled out of the country. This cope and the stories that surround it remind us of the power of art to point to both spiritual and temporal power, and the dangers therein. You can see this cope and more as it travels across the United States in the exhibition The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. Right now, the exhibit is on view at the Met and will be through January 8th, 2023. You can learn more at the links in the show notes. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Jan Gravius. Dr. Jan Graffius, welcome to AMDG. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted myself. Yeah, we're, we're excited to hear uh, your reflections and your expertise on uh, this new exhibit that's going to be on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called The Tudors, Art and Majesty. Um, can you tell us a little bit, just start by telling us a little bit about that, what people can expect to see? You know, it's truly one of the most amazing gatherings of art put together in my I'm, by a museum that I've encountered. Uh, It's the first exhibition of art of the Tudors in America, um, and it's been put on by the Met. I mean, the Met, of course, has a formidable reputation as one of the world's leading galleries, um, and its prestige and resources have enabled their curator, Liz Cleland, an Englishwoman, by the way, to gather together more than 100 objects intimately related to the Tudor dynasty from Henry VII through to Elizabeth I. And and really what the exhibition is trying to tease apart is how the Tudors used art um, and luxury goods, fabrics particularly, portraiture, to recast themselves after the Reformation. So if you think about Henry VII, um, and I will will, um, assume that your your, your audience is kind of familiar with the, the big civil war that we had in the 15th century in England. It's popularly known as the Wars of the Roses, although at the time it was known as the War of the Cousins because, like you know, many families, they were fighting each other internally. Um, there, were, there were two houses or two political dynasties, Lancaster, which was eventually victorious under Henry Tudor, and they had a red rose as their badge. And the House of York under Richard III, who was defeated, had a white rose. So when Henry took the throne in 1485, having killed Richard in battle, he had a huge job in his hands to unite a country that had been torn apart for decades and to unite two warring factions. But one of the first things he did was to marry Elizabeth of York, um, the oldest daughter of Edward IV, and therefore to try and unite the two houses by marriage. But he also started using symbols and signs um, to shore up his very shaky claim to, to the throne. There was not much royal about Henry Tudor 
um, his royalty came through his mother, Margaret Beaufort, who was, uh, the polite word is redoubtable, probably better described as terrifying. Um, <laughs> and, and anyway, so Henry shrewdly used the wealth he had gathered to start um, making this series of images to demonstrate to the English public that this very new and very shaky royal dynasty was here to stay by carving roses into, um, into architecture and particularly by using them sparkled across these lavish velvet fabrics. And we'll come back to the, the, the specific cope in a little while. Um, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Tudor reign is it started as an Orthodox Catholic um, family. Uh, right. Henry, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, his wife, deeply Orthodox Catholics. Uh, Henry VIII, the second son, his older brother died, was brought up as a very Orthodox Catholic. And for the last, the first sorry, 20 years of his reign, he was a faithful son of the church. Then, of course, the Reformation happened. Um, and Henry had to, Henry VIII had to uh, sort of replace the Catholic Church, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church, with this new confection English church that he put together. And he needed that to be supported by his wealth and his power and his patronage as an artist. Um, and, and so he started the, the, this idea of using imagery to shore up his, his claim to the throne. The, the most obvious ones are those very famous portraits by Hans Holbein, showing Henry VIII, you know, the one where he's standing with his legs apart and he's arrogant, he's daring you to look him in the face and his right. power, power personified. And he needed that power to stop his, um, his fragile new church falling apart because it wasn't popular. Most people uh, were quite happy with the Catholic church. Um, many people wanted reform, but many people didn't want to go quite as far as he did. So he used art to bolster up his, his dynasty. And then the third great uh, user of art and portraiture was his youngest daughter, Elizabeth. Um, and of course, the, 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 the church went from extreme Protestant under Henry's son, Edward, back to extreme Catholicism under his daughter, Mary. And then Elizabeth came in and tried to make everything nice. I mean, it didn't work out quite that way as far as Catholics were concerned. But she, she, she portrayed herself as the mother of the nation, the Virgin Queen, mm. um, and she effectively used iconography and symbolism to replace the image and the role of the Virgin Mary in the hearts of her subjects. So that's what we're looking at here. Power, prestige, um, papering over some very fragile um, arrangements uh, in, in, you know, in, in politics and in, in people's lives, and using, using you know, money and wealth and prestige to bulldoze their way through Wow, I, it's so interesting because as as you're describing it, you know, you could be describing just your kind of you know typical religious imagery, right? You think about especially in the Catholic Church, right? So, you know, uh, you know, so much art and, and imagery that kind of is supposed to uh, take our gaze upward, right, and help us imagine, um, you know, uh, kind of the spiritual life. And and what what I hear you describing is. Um, in some ways, the opposite, right? Using art to to really help us imagine a new temporal life, a new temporal order, um, which is which is fascinating. Are, are there? Um, uh, you know, I, I know there's one of the big pieces that's going to be at the Met um, is is this cope uh, that King Henry the Seventh commissioned. 
tell us more, why is that significant? And how did that help, um, as you're describing here, kind of bolster his, his temporal power? It's a fascinating object. Um, uh, I, I'll tell you the history of the Cope after Henry VII next. I mean, there's two stories, maybe three stories here. Right. But um, So Henry VII managed to gain, uh, gain the throne by killing his cousin, Richard. Um, and then he had to sort of form this dynasty. Uh, one of the things he was able to do was to use his wealth. He was extremely wealthy. He had very good tax collectors. And it just demonstrates his ruthlessness that uh, when he, you know, shortly after he took over the throne, he executed his two chief tax uh, collectors because the people were saying, hang on a minute, we can't afford to keep paying you all this money. So Henry, instead of saying, okay, we'll, we'll lessen the taxes, said, yes, blame the tax collectors and have them executed. Yikes. Um, I think in England we say throwing somebody under the bus. I don't know if you have the same, the same phrase. Yeah, yeah, that works here too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that Henry wanted to do was to ally the power of the church with the power of royalty. Uh, of course, in a t- totally orthodox Roman Catholic uh, country at the time. So he commissioned a set of 29 cloth of gold and red silk velvet damask copes uh, and a high mass set, chasuble, dalmatic, and a tunicle, um, for Westminster Abbey, the premier church in England, the beautiful medieval Westminster Abbey, where all of the royal um, occasions took place, coronations, um, christenings, marriages, funerals, and so on. It was, it was the place where power and so state power and religious power were, were, were you know, manifested mm. in that one place. So he wanted a set of 29 copes because those would um, dress, as it were, the entire hierarchy of the bishops of England and Wales. So he had this vision of the entire church authority proceeding up and down the aisles of Westminster Abbey at royal occasions, wearing this extraordinary set of clothes, of vestments. Um, he ordered them from the top of the range fabric um, manufacturers in Florence and Luca. Um, they made the best velvets in the world at that stage. They cost a large fortune, not a small fortune. Um, I mean, I it's bet. estimated that, that the, the cost in today's money would be between five and 10 million pounds. Wow. Um, and the, the technical ability of these weavers was extraordinary. So they're making cloth of gold, and in between the threads of gold are red velvet um, pile coming up, and then in between the pile are tiny little gold wires which catch the light and sparkle. Um, but the interesting thing about it is the imagery. There's hardly any religious imagery on these at all. There, there are sort of orphreys, these, these sort of um, uh, panels at the front and a hood at the back, which have embroidered images of the saints and the Virgin Mary. But they're very much second to the, the, the right-in-your-face um, design of the cope on the back, is a whacking great crown, and under it is a portcullis, which is that sort of spiked gate that you, know, you drop in castles to stop people coming in. The portcullis was the badge of his mother, the terrifying mm. Margaret Beaufort. And of course, his mother was his royal credentials. So he allied the crown, which was his, with his mother's royalty. And then in between were lots and lots of red roses for his political 
powerhouse, the Lancasters, um, and a few red and silver roses, which was a symbol of his marriage to Elizabeth, the white rose queen, and himself with the red rose. But effectively, when you look at it, it says, I'm Henry, I'm king, um, this is my power base, I'm really rich because I can afford these fabulous vestments, and all my bishops and cardinals are going to wear them. Uh, and, um, oh, by the way, there's a little bit of religious embroidery. So it's a powerful statement. Um, they were so sought after that Henry, um, he actually used them as collateral for bank loans. Wow. <laughs> they were so, so fabulously expensive. Um, so he left them to Westminster Abbey in his will, and then his son, Henry VIII, took them to the opulent field of cloth of gold, where he was you know, showing off against the French king in 1520 in this massive sort of face-off about I'm richer and more powerful and more artistic than you are. He took all of them across to, to, to France to be worn by the English bishops uh, to annoy the French. So that, that's, that's the significance of the cope itself. Yeah, it, it, it feels like it kind of blends, I mean, I think it does blend uh, what we're talking about earlier, this, this, you know, temporal power, spiritual power, you know, power of the church, power of the, uh, of the, of the, you know, the purse and um, everything else. And I, and I think, um, again, it, sh- it goes to show the power of art. I, I'm curious because um, you've, you've said a couple of times, uh, you know, this display of, of power and money, but also artistic ability as being key to, um, you know, the, the powers that be of that time. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel quite that way anymore that people are, are uh, rulers are as concerned with, with showing off, you know, that which is beautiful of their, of their, uh, uh, you know, governing, uh, you know, governing place or whatever. Um, is that true? Or, or is there something specific of that time uh, that, that really says like, I want to show off um, my artistic ability? Well, remember this is the period of the Renaissance. Mm, right. So the, the late 15th, uh, early 16th century, uh, it was cool to be educated. It was cool to be in touch with uh, Renaissance art and style. Um, and, you know, for, for a monarch in those days, you, you had to be scholarly, you had to be well-read, you had to be able to speak several languages. Um, and so to be in touch with the latest fashions from, mostly from Italy, which is sort of the, the crucible of the Renaissance, if you like, uh, was sh- was Henry showing he was in touch with culture, uh, and culture in those days was um, something that rich men could command, and mm. and and but you had to have the best. So you know, if you're a pope, you wanted Michelangelo. Um, if you were a king in England, you wanted Hans Holbein, or you wanted you know these beautiful uh, Italian fabrics. So it was a way of showing I'm not only powerful, I'm not only in charge. But I'm extremely clever. I'm an all-round Renaissance individual, um, right. and 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 that that that's a large part of what they were saying. Our governments nowadays, uh, no, I think nowadays governments largely complain about the cost of running museums. <laughs> and, <laughs> I never um, know the make of the president's suit, you know. So, <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I think perhaps it's it's not sort of thought suitable for governments now to be that opulent. So that that sort of spending has has devolved onto businessmen, um, right. entrepreneurs, millionaires, and so on, uh, rather, than, rather than the government. But it does point back to power in so many ways. Um, I, you know, I want to go back to the, I know that the COPE has such a fascinating history, and it, and it starts out right as this, um, you know, 
wonderfully expensive piece of art that's commissioned. Um, and, then I, and then I think part of that history is it gets smuggled out of the country, right, during the Reformation. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about um, the history of the Cope in general, but then how does the Cope kind of reflect the history of Catholicism um, in England uh, during those years? It's, it's a really interesting story. Uh, the museum I'm privileged to look after is full of pre-Reformation and 17th century Catholic, the technical term is material culture, otherwise known as stuff, um, <laughs> which was under threat of destruction in England. After Henry VIII's Reformation, uh, he started to destroy certain things. So it started with, um, with the shrines, the shrines of medieval shrines of the saints in cathedrals. Under Edward, his son, it became images, um, Books were defaced. I mean, the, the phrase defaced means literally somebody going through a book and, and taking out the face, rubbing out the faces of the holy, the holy family. Um, we've got some shocking examples of a little nativity scene, a 15th century nativity scene, and somebody has simply scribbled over the faces of the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. They've left mm -hmm. the donkeys and the, and the ox fine, but, but not, <laughs> not the holy figures. Um, and then under Elizabeth, uh, it became much more complicated and much more dangerous because Elizabeth's claim to the throne was shaky. In the eyes of Catholics, she wasn't legitimate. Her mother's marriage, her mother Anne Boleyn's marriage to Henry was not seen as legitimate. Therefore, she wasn't the rightful queen. And therefore, she had to go much further than her siblings and her father in crushing the Catholic religion. And one of the first things and you can see this in the world now, sadly, when you look around the world. One of the first things that a state or a regime will go for is the outward manifestation of a religion. So it's mm -hmm. churches, uh, it's, it's, it's silverware, it's, it's, it's chasubles, it's vestments, it's manuscripts. So these things were being sought out for destruction in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and more than that, owning these things, many of them were hidden, you know, rolled up in trunks and put in the attic or buried. We've got a fabulous selection of pre-Reformation vestments that were buried for 300 years um, just to keep them safe. But if you had the priest hunters or the local authorities raid your house, which happened at any time of the day or night, then if they found these things, that was very, very bad for you. It was a, you know, a, an immediate example of the fact that you were a Catholic, you were not a loyal subject of the queen, and you could go to prison. Or worse. Can you give us a sense, um, just briefly not to interrupt, but um, at this point in, in, in English history, um, kind of why are Catholics uh, kind of the, the uh, you know being persecuted? Why why are they um, kind of in this bad relationship with the crown? I'm obviously you know, you've, you've illustrated um, kind of the, the you know Catholic monarchs come and go, and and um, and obviously there's you know there's that tension in in the post Reformation era. Um, but but just so that listeners have a good sense of the historical context, I, I'll do my best because it is complicated. <laughs> so it was the elevator, the elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth worth. So you had Elizabeth, who came to the throne after the death of her half-sister Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. And at, at first, Elizabeth, who was very young at the time, uh, and, you know, female rulers in England were not at all common. Uh, Mary was the first sovereign, and Elizabeth, her sister, was the second. So she, again, like her father and grandfather, had to shore up support. And she started off by saying that she wanted everybody to get along. She wanted not to make a window into people's souls. Um, 
but to you know to to try and see if, if the, the traditional Catholics known as recusants and the the new Church of England Anglicans could could find a way of subsisting together. Um, this fell apart for a number of reasons. Chiefly, um, the sort of the real grit in the oyster, if you like, was Mary Queen of Scots, um, who managed to get herself exiled from Scotland. She fled to England to seek, you know, sanctuary from her cousin Elizabeth. But Mary immediately attracted large numbers of supporters who saw her as a Catholic, born legitimately. She was, uh, she was half Tudor or a quarter Tudor, so she had you know, a claim to the throne. She was, in their eyes, the perfect queen, and Elizabeth was seen as a usurper. So the plots began, and um, eventually Elizabeth had enough and executed her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and Mary's, Mary, Queen of Scots' claim to the throne of England was massively supported by Philip of Spain, who had, this is complicated, who had been married to Elizabeth's sister Mary and had a real interest in what was going on in England and obviously as a Catholic himself wanted England to be a Catholic country. So the King of Spain sent across the famous Spanish Armada to try and invade England and depose Elizabeth and put uh, another Catholic on the throne. So for the English government, this was a real propaganda coup because they were suddenly in the position of saying, Catholics are traitorous. They are disloyal. They uh, are trying to get rid of the rightful queen. Um, and there was this, this uh, question called the bloody question that was put to people on trial um, for supposedly traitorous acts. If the Pope invaded tomorrow, who do you support? Hmm. And for Catholics, that was very difficult to answer because you either say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't support the Pope, um, thereby being a traitor to my country, or I would support the Queen, thereby, you know, um, being unfaithful or, or um, to, to my, my religious loyalty to the Pope. So that, that was sort of the background to it. It was all to do with loyalty to the state. And Catholics right. at that point, um, from for many centuries afterwards, were usually portrayed as being with divided loyalties. Right. And even in, in the United States, right, that was a, a, a big problem for, for most of the American history uh, yeah. for Catholics. So um, so thus the destruction of, of art uh, and, and, and culture, uh, as you were as you're describing. Yeah. Um, so let's so let's get back then to, to the cope. So so how else how is this playing out historically? OK, so you've got these 29 copes and the high mass set in Westminster Abbey. Um, and then the destruction of the Reformation begins in 1540. Um, for a long time, nobody knows what's happening to the vestments um, until one of them suddenly turns up at this English Jesuit school in France. So researching backwards, um, it's, it's become apparent that 28 of the copes were destroyed, uh, probably in the reign of Edward, who was much more of an iconoclast than, than his father, or in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. But one cope and one Chasuble were hidden by the Cotton family. Um, and John Cotton was, in fact, a companion to Edmund Campion on the English mission. So came from a family of, you know, extremely staunch Catholic recusants. Um, so the Cotton family got hold of one of these, hid them, and, and, you know, probably stuck them up in the attic. And then the catalyst for it being smuggled out of England, I think, was the 1605 gunpowder plot. Hmm. 
when a group of Catholic hotheads got together and decided it'd be a really good idea to blow up Parliament and the King and his entire family because that would end well. Right. Um, I think we lost a few Jesuits in, the, in that, didn't we? Oh, more than a few, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, more than a few. And in fact, one of our first pupils, um, three of our first pupils, uh, one was Thomas Garnet, our first martyr, mm. 1608, a Jesuit. Uh, one was Andrew White, the Apostle of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And one was um, Ambrose Rookwood, who was one of the gunpowder plotters. So an interesting group of young pupils to try and teach, I always think. Um, so the, the gunpowder plot focused the government on Catholics yet again, and they started raiding houses. Um, and so probably between 1606 and 1609, this was smuggled across the seas. I guess the question I, I have then is... Um... Like I'm, I'm fascinated at the at the risk that people would take to protect this this um, this item that was meant to to shore up power over them, um, both you know temporally and spiritually and, and all the rest. Um, and, and yet this this goes from kind of representing uh, you know the the king uh, to to representing something else, right? So what so what does the cope represent in the eyes of of the people that are you know protecting it? Uh, you know, then and and now, how does that how does that progress? It's it's fascinating. There was a sort of a, a subtle change in in people's minds, as as you suggest. Um, if I explain briefly, our school was founded in 1593 by Stonehurst College. Stonehurst College. It was then found. It was founded at, at Saint Omer, just outside Calais, and it was known as Saint Omer's College, founded by the English Jesuit Robert Parsons, for English boys to have a Catholic education that was uh, illegal in England. So the boys started to come across the channel. They had to change their names because if they were arrested, and many of them were, their parents were put in prison. Um, Mm. They traveled in disguise. And right from the very beginning, they started bringing with them medieval manuscripts, uh, chalices, relics, vestments, and so on, that were seen as too dangerous to, to keep at home. And they were sent across the seas to safety, but also... They were intended to be an inspiration, a spiritual inspiration to the boys in exile. I don't know if you could imagine, you know, leaving your home when you were 10 or 11 and not going home until you're 18 or 19 um, in a school that was constantly under threat from spies and infiltration. It's a very febrile atmosphere. Um, And one of the things that these vestments were, were used for was as a reminder to the children that there once was a time when England was a Catholic country, when it was perfectly normal and and laudable to practice your faith. And what the cope represented was not royal power and political power, which is what it was made for. What it represented was that thread of continuity with England's royal Catholic past. Uh, And that's why it was so significant. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, and, uh, and just amazing again how how these pieces of art, uh, you know, they just just kind of they change in their meaning over over time as as people need need those 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 changes. Can, can you talk a little bit more about um, the Jesuits in particular uh, during this time period? Because I know you know the Jesuits go from being good friends of of the Carroll family, right? Who, who you know key founders of of, of Catholic Maryland. Um, uh, to being you know uh, martyred as as uh, as, as Edmund Campion and others were. Um, so tell us how that shift took place. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, 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 
the, the Jesuits were the most formidable missionaries in Tudor England. Um, so you imagine in, in, in England that you weren't allowed to ordain priests. And the government was counting on all the old priests dying out and there being no new young priests to come and take their place. So were these Jesuits highly trained, great debaters, great orators, great um, preachers, smuggling themselves into the country, this, this caused a huge problem for the government. Um, so the, the laws singled Jesuits out for particularly severe treatment. They're, as I say, they were dangerous enemies. Um, and together with their learning and their preaching and their theology, um, the, the compelling story of their courage as hunted priests, um, and if you read Campion's letters uh, of the time he was in England, you know he says, I cannot escape long the hands of the heretics. Um, every house he stayed in, 48 hours maximum, and then he had to move because of the risks of being betrayed. So these, these stories of their courage as hunted priests, the circulated accounts of their forbearance under torture, and their stoicism at the hideous death, hideous deaths they suffered on the scaffold. Well, you can see why they were held in such high esteem. And for the Catholics, they were regarded as, uh, as very, very special people. For the English government, um, they, they kind of regarded Campion as something of a traitor. He was originally brought up uh, in the, the Church of England. He, in fact, took Anglican orders as a young man, and he was singled out for praise uh, the University of Oxford, he was the one who was allowed to give a, an address to young Queen Elizabeth when she made her first visit to the University of Oxford. And he was widely tipped to be a future Archbishop of Canterbury, a great future in the Church of England. And for Campion to throw it all away and then to go and join the, the most formidable enemy of the Church of England was, uh, you know, was difficult for the English government to, to stomach. Um, so... They were desperate to catch him, and the story of what happened to him and of his death was widely circulated. And of course, it was something of an own goal, as, as I'm sure it's been said in, in other places, that the worst thing you can do to someone to persecute them is to make them a martyr. Mm. And Campion's martyrdom, you know, raised him up from being an extraordinary missionary to being a saint in the making. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, 120 priests were executed throughout the 16th and 17th century, and numerous lay people, 21 of our own former pupils, uh, died. Wow. So we have three saints, 10 BRT, and the rest of venerable servants of God between 1608 and 1679. So the, the Jesuits at our school were turning out generations of young priests to come and take the place of, of the, those who were captured and executed. Wow. So, so tell us more then about, about Stonyhurst College and, and Campion Hall at Oxford, you know, how these um, institutions, um, you know, situate themselves in this, this storied legacy. Stonyhurst is, as you probably know now, the oldest surviving Jesuit school in the world. Um, it's it's an international co-educational boarding school based in Lancashire, the north of England. Um, it is beautiful and green countryside it rains a lot here um, and we educate boys and girls from over 40 countries in very beautiful and historic grounds um, but we're very much based on that tradition of educating young men originally and now young men and young women to know what they believe in to be able to um, 
understand and to defend uh, their own beliefs and to take those skills into whatever walk of life they they choose to follow. Uh, some go off to join the priesthood. Many go off to work in um, in social justice, um, in, in various charitable works, in government, and so on. So the, the idea really is that the, the, the Catholic education, the Jesuit education, forms them mm-hmm. to take on the role that's needed uh, through, throughout, you know, throughout the 400 and more years of, of the history of our school. So at the beginning, it was, we need priests um, and then politicians. And, and now we need young men and women with strongly um, formed social consciences who are educated, who know what they believe in, who know what they, they, they feel is right, and who are able to go out into the world and try and change it. Um, and what I do in my work is take the vast collection of items from the past and make them relevant for the future. Hmm. So, for instance, we have a fabulous collection of natural history specimens from the from 1810 up to about 1930, which were put together for scientists trying to work out the, the you know the, the natural world. Um, they're now used to teach climate change. Hmm. Uh, these animals lived here. These botanical specimens grew here. What's changed? What's different? And how do these things from the past inform what's happening now and inform what's going to happen in the future? Um, so it's, uh, it's not just learning about history. It's, it's history in action in the present, which is a very Jesuit idea. Yeah, it is. You know, you describe, as you describe the school in, in so many ways, it resonates with, you know, my own experience of Jesuit education and, and, and um, Jesuit education, you know, all around uh, the U.S., um, uh, my, to my knowledge. Um, but, but, but to sit, to sit in such a, again, a storied place, um, and to have that history kind of in the, in the very walls of, of, of the building, I, I imagine is, um, just adds a whole other layer and dimension, um, which is, which is very powerful to, to hear. Thank you for kind of helping us to unpack that. Um, I wonder just a last question to close us out. If, if you can, um, give sense, give a sense to folks, uh, what, what, what are you most excited for people to see at this exhibit at the Met and, um, and when can they go? It's open now. October 3rd, it opened in New York, and I believe it's there until January. Then it goes to Cleveland in Ohio, where it's there till uh, late spring. And then it goes across to San Francisco, uh, where it will be until the, the end of the summer, early early autumn. So it's it's East Coast. My geography is very poor. Ohio is kind of in the middle. Kind and, of middle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and all the way to the west, <laughs> and all the way to the west. Uh, I'm looking forward to this very much because I've actually never been further west than Minneapolis. So the things to see—I mean, my goodness me—it will. It, if you can get to see it, it will knock your socks off. If you can't get to see it, then look at their amazing website where they've identified a dozen objects. One of which is our beautiful Cope. Um, so for me, I think it's uh, seeing the face of people and learning a little bit more about them. So there there are two I'm going to single out. One is the very famous small portrait of Henry VIII by Hans Holbein, Mm. which has this beautiful blue background. Um, The the blue paint was actually more valuable than gold because it was made from ultramarine, which comes from lapis lazuli, which only came from Afghanistan. So you can imagine getting that from Afghanistan. And it made this beautiful translucent blue paint um, and the gold leaf is is real gold. So, you know, it's, it's a, an object of great 
uh, value. And Henry's sitting there looking at you, daring you to defy him. But for me, the, the lovely thing about it is that under his fabulously embroidered um, doublet, he's got the, the neck of his linen shirt just showing. Um, and the linen shirt is embroidered with Spanish black work, which was a, a design taken from, from Islamic art, very popular in Spain, and believed to have been made popular in England by Catherine of Aragon. Mm. Uh, Catherine of Aragon was a very um, traditional wife, and she insisted on making Henry's shirts herself. She would not allow anybody else to make his underclothes. So you see that little tiny frill around his neck that was made by his wife and embroidered by her own hand. And that's the only sign of humanity in that painting. Mm, wow, beautiful. Um, and then the other one uh, is a fabulous picture, dates from around 1600, of the Moroccan ambassador to the court of Queen Elizabeth, um, Abd El, oh gosh, I'm gonna make a complete mess of this. Um, his name was Mohamed Anoun, and he came from Morocco. He was sent by the Sultan of Morocco with a delegation to England with clandestine orders to propose an Anglo-Moroccan alliance against Spain, so um, to, to defeat the, the Spanish Catholics. So this portrait is the very first ever of a Muslim painted in England, and it is just the most commanding picture of this tall, handsome, striking man in white and black with a scimitar. He was only there for six months, but he was absolutely the most popular thing. Everybody wanted to see him and to talk to him and to understand a little bit about where he came from. And scholars have, in fact, speculated that, that this embassy um, from this Moroccan ambassador prompted a fashion for plays with Muslim themes, possibly even Shakespeare's Othello. So interesting. It's a just, it's a beautiful painting. So those are my two, cool. my two things, apart from the coat. Right, of course, that's a, that's, a, that's, a free, that's a free spot, right? In the bingo card, so. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Jane Graffius, thank you so much um, for coming on AMDG today and for sharing all this really fascinating history. Uh, we hope you'll come back. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me on. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Beggy Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.